0: I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, the show where celebrities share stories about the foods they love most, and we dig into the history, culture, and science of those meals with experts from around the world. Today on the program, writer Tucker Shaw. Tucker's debut novel is called When You Call My Name. It follows two gay teenage boys navigating the AIDS crisis in 1990 New York City. Tucker was also editor-in-chief of America's Test Kitchen and dining editor and food critic at the Denver Post. But I was introduced to Tucker in 2005 when a friend gifted me his book, Everything I Ate, A Year in the Life of My Mouth. It's a book of photographs, documenting every single thing that Tucker ate in a year, which sounds completely normal now, but Tucker's book came out before social media when the only way that you could see what someone was having for breakfast was if you were sitting across from them.
1: There was a little morbid part of me that imagined 10,000 years from now, a future anthropologist digging through the ruins of (laughs) Manhattan and finding a relic like this.
0: So I interviewed two anthropologists who study what ancient humans ate, including a recently discovered 70,000-year-old Neanderthal meal. If you eat or have eaten the paleo diet, you're gonna wanna listen to this. And we'll explore the history and stories behind iconic cereal mascots like Cap'n Crunch and Tony the Tiger. It's gonna be great. Great. but first, my conversation with Tucker Shaw. I am oh, well. so thrilled to talk to you because I don't know if your publicist told you, but I have your book, Everything I Ate, and oh, wow. it was like a little Bible for me. I freaking I mean, I'm holding it right now. I still have it on my bookshelf. And when she pitched you, I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know that name. <laughs> um, and so I'm really excited to chat with you about this book you wrote 8,000 years ago, but a lot of other things as well. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Oh, great. Oh, I'm so glad.
0: Tucker's book is nothing like the glossy, styled, well-lit photographs of food that we see every day on social media. These are quick shots, taken with a point-and-shoot digital camera. There are unrecognizable dishes photographed in dark New York City restaurants. A blurry bowl of cereal on Tucker's coffee table with the Golden Girls on TV in the background. There are actually a lot of blurry photographs. And he wasn't going to a new restaurant every night or cooking new dishes for the sake of the book. It was an actual snapshot of a real person's life. So talk about why you decided to take a photograph of everything you ate for an entire year in 2004.
1: Well, it was a strange time to be doing that, I guess, in retrospect. You know, this was before social media, before smartphones. Uh, I I didn't have a cell phone with a camera on it or anything like that. But around 2003, the end of 2003, I was thinking a lot about food and a lot about the way that we consume things and and recognize that like New York City, at the beginning of the 21st century, there was more food and more variety of food around me than probably had ever been before in history for anyone. It wasn't all accessible to me because I didn't have like tons of money, but there was just evidence of just extraordinary amounts of food and this incredible variety that would have not been recognizable to, you know, my ancestors, certainly. And there was a little morbid part of me that imagined 10,000 years from now, a future anthropologist digging through the ruins of (laughs) Manhattan and finding a relic like this, finding this kind of document that really shed some light on kind of what I don't know, average guy in downtown Manhattan would eat every day. These are the kinds of historical documents that always meant the most to me. I mean, of course, it's become a little bit moot because Instagram came along and then suddenly everybody was taking pictures of their food, um, which is amazing and cool. But at that time, I didn't know anything else like that that existed. And I just imagined myself a thousand years hence being a little history student looking at something like this and being very excited.
0: Yeah. And when Instagram did come out and people started posting pictures of food, were you like, hey, I already did that in a book?
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. I I never really stopped doing it. It's something I had always done on a much smaller scale, like when I got on vacation or something. Those are always the photographs that meant the most to me when I came home from a trip because they're the most evocative. Like if I can see something that I ate while I was on vacation, I remember everything who I was with, how it felt, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, It's almost like a diary. And so when I started seeing that on Instagram, I thought, wow, this is amazing. Like I'm not the only person who's sort of weird in this particular
0: way. Yeah. The thing that's so endearing about your book now, though, and is so different from Instagram is Instagram is often criticized and also beloved for how perfect it is. You know, people Mm -hmm. have really beautiful photos and everything looks perfect. And your book, I mean, there's a lot of blurry photos. All the photos are tiny. There's bad lighting. There's shadows. I mean, they're like, no offense, you know, I mean, some of them are just terrible pictures
1: totally but you know remember also first of all i'm not really a photographer so it's kind of weird that i have like a book of photographs being published you know but also like at that time nobody was taking pictures in restaurants it was sort of like this weird thing to do and and i used to get a little bit of hassle every now and then from a waiter or somebody else who would see me taking photographs and I don't know really what the, the problem was, but but maybe they thought I was spying for a, a dining critic or something like that. But when you took a photograph in 2004 in a restaurant in New York City, and if, first of all, the lighting in the restaurant was not set up for this the way that it is now in many places. But if the flash went off, you'd either get everybody in the restaurant turning to say, is that Liza Minnelli? Like, who's here? Like, is somebody famous here? Like, <laughs> Or you would get like, absolutely blase. No one would notice a thing in that kind of classic New York way. And also whoever I was eating with was probably impatient about, oh great, here's Tucker with his camera out again, taking another picture. Could we please eat? Uh, So I didn't take like tons and tons of pictures trying to get the perfect one. I just wanted to get the documentation. And about halfway through the project, I realized like that was actually part of my mission. I hadn't articulated it ahead of time, but I wanted it to be real. And not be too fake or pretty.
0: I used to carry a little digital camera in my bag, too, and take a lot of food pictures way before social media. And I remember Mm. when that shift happened, when there started to be articles in the paper about, you know, chefs saying you can't take pictures in my restaurant. And it's just funny in such a short amount of time how that shifted into people want you to take pictures in their restaurants now. They want all the publicity for free.
1: Totally. I mean, Instagram and even TikTok now, these are really great ways of discovering restaurants.
0: I think like one of the reasons that I loved this book was because you were this cool person living in New York City, and I was 24 or 25, and I loved food, but I didn't make that much money. And so it was like, this aspirational thing of watching this cool person go out to all these great restaurants and you know watch you travel on the weekends and it was so personal but it was also like wow can I be like him someday
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's so funny I would not have thought of myself as particularly cool but I could see when you peer into some a little window of somebody's life like that like you say it was very personal (laughs)
0: When Tucker wrote Everything I Ate, he imagined an archaeologist unearthing his book from the rubble in 10,000 years, a perfect record of what an average man ate in New York City in 2004. So I was wondering, what archaeologists are unearthing today? What do we know about how our ancestors ate? Several years ago, archaeologists discovered hundreds of mummies in the desert of western China, each one buried under a boat with an oar for a grave marker. And despite being 4,000 years old, the bodies are so well preserved by the dry, salty environment that their faces are completely intact. Every article that I read showed the same photo, a beautiful mummified woman with thick, long hair, a big fluffy hat. You can even see her eyelashes. But my favorite part, the reason that I found the story in the first place, is the mummy in the photograph was buried wearing a necklace made of cheese. I like to imagine she was some kind of ancient Chinese wine lady who was like, OMG, this Gouda is so good. Bury me with a charcuterie board. LOL, 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 and then they did. But that's just my theory. Let's see what some people who actually know what they're talking about have to say. Dr. Jaren Kabuktu is a researcher at Portugal's University of Algarve. She specializes in archaeobotanical remains.
2: I study almost all plant parts, including seeds, um, tuber, nutshell. Anything that is able to survive a fire, I study it. For the past several years, Jaren has been digging through and
0: analyzing 70,000-year-old charred remains found in a cave in Iraq.
2: Shanidar Cave is on the northern Zagros Mountains in northern Iraq. Shanidar Cave is one of these well-known sites that had been excavated back in the day, and they found Neanderthal burials at the site. We got boxes and boxes of archaeobotanical samples, which are macro remains, essentially larger pieces of plant remains that are preserved through carbonization, which is exposure to low-level fire or heat. I've been sorting and working on them since about 2016, 2017. I often get things like carbonized pieces of seeds, um, pieces of nutshell. I started seeing things that essentially look like carbonized pieces of breadcrumbs, and I started investigating to see if these are bits of food that were accidentally burnt. And yeah, this is what we think they are at the minute. Food that fell into a fire or close to it and carbonized by chance. This was a huge discovery. It proved that Neanderthals ate
0: pulses like lentils, and they combined different plants, seeds, grasses, and pulses to cook actual dishes. Jaron discovered the oldest known carbonized meal, proving that ancient humans cooked and ate grains. So talk about the significance of
2: finding, you know, a cooked
0: food item.
2: Um, so the cool thing is that we often get bits of food stuck in people's teeth from prehistory which is how we know for example they would have eaten things like tubers or grasses etc we don't often get to see them in combinations if we find single seeds or or mixtures of nutshell etc we don't know exactly which combinations they would have prepared them with and and the steps that are followed when you get a lump of food that's carbonized you can see different plant foods that have been put together, and some of the steps that are involved in making this thing. It's almost like a snapshot into a recipe. And some of the steps that are followed, like soaking, grinding, or mashing. Were you all able to know what specific kinds of plants that you were looking at? Yeah, so we found relatives of the wild pea, wild wetches, which today is used quite a lot as chicken feed and relatives of wild lentil as well. They believe they combine these ingredients into patties. So if you do any
0: Googling on this topic and you just Google, what did early humans eat? There's so many conflicting articles, some that say they only ate meat. And not only did they eat meat, they only ate large game. They were killing elephants. yeah. Yeah. So this discovery is actually quite significant in, you know, disproving those theories, right? Yeah. I
2: mean, so one thing I really wanted to do was to bring our evidence into the public debate because, In reality, we've been starting to find for the last 10, 20 years, perhaps, that there's quite a lot of diversity when you start looking at the upper and middle Paleolithic, as well as the later prehistory. The people quite reasonably ate what is available close to their settlements. They went out and collected different plants. They went out and hunted a lot of different animals, including small game like turtles and rabbits and such. It is very interesting to me that people today want to know What is the ideal diet? And then there's this sort of romanticized view of hunter-gatherers in the past because they think perhaps they were really strong and, and fit and could run for miles. So they want to understand how can we make ourselves like this?
0: You're probably familiar with the paleo diet. The idea is to only eat foods that humans may have eaten during the paleolithic era. Only whole foods, nothing processed. But things like grains,
2: legumes, lentils, white potatoes and beer are not allowed. Some of the paleo diet proponents are saying is you shouldn't eat pulses, you shouldn't eat cereals because these are not our true diets. And and this certainly is not the case. We have much earlier evidence for the consumption of things like tubers and grasses. so. One thing that we can do for with hunter-gatherer research is, is to show that there's actually quite a long-term tradition of us relying on these kinds of plants, especially ones that have high fiber content or different plant chemicals that could potentially improve our immune systems or, or contribute to our diets in different ways than just providing bulk calories or protein. And another thing I guess we bring to the table is, is this highlighting culinary traditions that seem to be stretching all the way back into the Middle Paleolithic that might not just be about what plants bring into our diets as pure calories, but as flavor items.
0: What is the significance of of these kind of discoveries and this kind of work? I mean, obviously there's a curiosity and we're just interested in, you know, how people existed and lived in the past, but is it more than just curiosity?
3: Yeah, I think it's really important to learn a lot more about what was happening
0: in the past. That's Dr. Sarah R. Graff, honors faculty fellow at Arizona State University. Specializing in anthropological archaeology. There have been
3: a lot of trends, like let's say the paleo diet, for example, that has purported to be a healthier diet for people to follow because it was the diet of our ancestors. We actually know, you know, with a lot more research, that the current understanding of a paleo diet, which is, you know, heavily based on meat and there's very little carbohydrates, is actually not the way that our ancestors were eating. And so uh, I think it's actually really important that people learn more about really what was happening in the past so that they don't make mistakes for the future.
0: Dr. Graf teaches a class called Anthropology of Cooking and Food Preparation, where the class discusses things like Is cooking what makes us human?
3: Was it cooking food or access to fire and the ability to cook food and transform food? Is that what made it possible for human beings? to survive and to grow their brains and then evolve. We have evidence, obviously, that Neanderthals were also cooking and eating similar kinds of foods, but uh, no one has really solved the problem of why is it that Homo sapiens sapiens evolved and Neanderthals didn't.
0: Is the theory that there are certain foods that made our brains bigger, better, smarter, and that might have been the evolution of the brain is from food? Yeah, there's an anthropologist
3: named Richard Wrangham, who has probably been the most famous person to to talk about this theory. But he argues that humans needed to be eating meat and cooked meat in order to grow to the brain size that we would have needed. Some of this is being called into question because of more recent research. Back last fall, it was announced by the team that's working on Homo naledi that they found evidence that Homo naledi, which is another early ancestor, um, was cooking in caves. And they hadn't had any evidence of this before. So we may have to relook at some of these theories about exactly why certain groups uh, were able to survive and other groups were
0: not. Isn't there an argument that it was carbohydrates, in fact, that helped grow the brain?
3: Yes, there are some people that, that have argued carbohydrates, you know, things like tubers, honey, things like that. Having access to those foods were able to also grow the brain, um, but that hasn't been decided
0: yet. One of the things that stood out to me when Jaren was talking is that archaeologists find food stuck in the teeth of human remains.
3: You know, they're able to basically just scrape the plaque that is on the teeth And then analyze it and they can find what kinds of things uh, people were eating. Sometimes they find sort of remains inside of the actual body cavity. um, And sometimes they even find (laughs) poop, ancient poop, right? (laughs) And they're able to actually
0: analyze that and they know exactly what people were eating. I feel like that's a pretty good band name, ancient poop. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Ancient poop, ancient plaque. This kind of research is so fascinating to me. Each of the researchers has such a niche specialty, and they work on these projects for so long. I could never do this kind of work. I think it really takes a certain kind of patient personality. Your job sounds fascinating. I mean, yeah, it can be fun. (laughs) It can also be quite boring. Okay, time for a break, but when we come back, what would archaeologists find in Tucker's ancient teeth? There is a food that he ate almost every single night before bed. We will discuss. And do you know Captain Crunch's full name? I didn't. And now that I do, I can't stop telling people. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Poulsbo, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch and in the morning stop by saboteur bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery you'll think you're in paris there's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest and there are several naval museums in bremerton go to visit kitsap.com your last meal to learn more that's k-i-t-s-a-p or you can find a link in the show notes play and stay on the kitsap peninsula the natural side of the puget sound <laughs> In his book, Everything I Ate, you notice a lot of patterns about how Tucker ate in 2004. Almost every night without fail, no matter how much you ate that day, no matter what kind of (laughs) giant rich meal you had, you always finish the night with a bowl of cereal. Uh, What is your relationship with cereal and do you still have the same cereal love as you did in 2004?
1: I still have the same cereal love, but I I partake much less frequently because it's almost 20 years hence, and the old (laughs) metabolism is not quite the same as it was. But for me, I guess a bowl of cereal was almost like a pacifier. It was sort of like a little switch. That said, the day is over. Maybe there's something actually physically true with milk, or, or I don't know what it is, but it really felt like a signal to my little brain that, like, okay, now it's really time to wind down. And, you know, at that time, I also had a pretty significant sweet tooth, and, and most cereals, even if they're not sort of classically sugary cereals, have a certain sweetness to them.
0: What's your favorite cereal? The
1: favorite cereal that I wish I could eat all the time, but I don't, is Frosted Flakes. I Uh love a classic, Frosted Flakes. Yeah, it's just so simple and good. And the milk that it makes, oh man, so good.
0: (laughs) I have to admit, I've never had Frosted Flakes. I was one of those kids. I know, I wasn't allowed to have sugar cereal. And then I grew up and I just continued eating Grape Nuts and Crispix Mm. and Cheerios. I've had a few sugary ones, but that one isn't it.
1: Yeah, Cheerios are great.
0: Oh, they're so good. I
1: think Cheerios are really fantastic.
0: And I think they're one of the few cereals that you can't have the generic. Like, Grape Nuts, you can give me, what do they call, like, Crunchy Rock Nuggets or whatever. I'll eat them. (laughs) But Cheerios have a particular flavor that I feel like it cannot be reproduced or copied.
1: Yeah, it's almost like terroir or something.
0: Yeah, it's the the (laughs) Cheerio terroir, exactly. Frosted Flakes were invented by Kellogg's in 1952. They were originally called Sugar Frosted Flakes, but they dropped the word sugar in the 80s when parents started to wonder if kids should eat a sugary
4: breakfast. Tony the Tiger... Of course, he was one of the creations of the Leo Burnett advertising agency in Chicago that handled all of Kellogg's advertising. And Leo Burnett, that agency was renowned for coming up with catchy advertising characters. Not only all of the Kellogg characters, but they created the Pillsbury Doughboy and the Jolly Green Giant and Charlie the Tuna. Their knack was coming up with mascot characters.
0: That's Tim Hollis, author of Part of a Complete Breakfast, Serial Characters of the Baby Boom Era. Where are you based? I'm trying to figure it out by your accent. Somewhere in the South.
4: Oh, yes. Well, I'm just outside Birmingham, Alabama. Howdy, (laughs) (laughs) y'all. Well, I'll just say (laughs) howdy-doody.
0: Tony the Tiger was created by Don Tennant at the Leo Burnett Agency. He also created the Marlboro Man.
4: But what's interesting is that during the first couple of years, Tony alternated with another character, Katie the Kangaroo. They did uh, like half of the boxes with Tony on them and half of the boxes with Katie on them. And the boxes with Tony sold and the ones with Katie didn't. And that was how he ended up taking the whole thing, you know. Of course, we can't forget to talk about the fellow who was his voice, Thurl Ravenscroft, the great voice actor and singer, was Tony's voice from the very beginning. He remained Tony's voice up until he died in, I want to say, around 2005, 2006. He ended up doing it for a little over 50 years, which is probably a record that will never be broken in the TV commercial realm. I can't think of any characters now that will be around in 50 years.
0: How many times in 50 years can one man say, great?
4: Yeah. What you hear as Tony's voice was basically Thurl's regular voice, maybe deepened a little bit, but he had a naturally deep speaking voice. And of course, as most people know, he was the one who sang, You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch. So that shows you just how low his voice could go.
0: Who was the first cereal mascot? Why did they start having these mascots represent cereal brands? Because all of the kids' cereals have a mascot.
4: Well, that's true. Mascots go back even further than kids' cereals, though. I guess that the earliest cereal mascot, if you want to call it that, would be the Quaker Oats Man. He goes back into the 1800s. Not too long after him would have come the cream of wheat chef. They weren't characters in the same way that the animated characters were, but they were the first cereal mascots. I think Kellogg's first character was a beautiful girl they called the sweetheart of the corn she was on the the cornflakes boxes in the early days <laughs> it's kind of funny that post cereals their very first cereal it was called elijah's manna and the boxes actually had a picture of elijah on the front so he was probably the only old testament character to ever serve as a cereal mascot <laughs>
0: But religion did show up at least one other time.
4: Quaker Oatmeal did an ad campaign using Popeye and in the commercials Popeye would get into some kind of trouble and olive oil would offer him his spinach and Popeye's line was, can the spinach I want to be Quaker Oatmeal? He would eat the oatmeal and punch out Bluto or whatever, and then he would sing, I'm Popeye the Quaker man. (laughs) Well, the Quaker church didn't like that very much. (laughs) If there's one thing the Quaker church is known for, it's being nonviolent, and here was Popeye the Quaker man beating up (laughs) on people. So that ad campaign ended pretty fast, I would say.
0: Eventually, all the kids' cereals got a mascot. Usually, the cereal came first, and then the mascot followed— but the Captain Crunch character was created before the cereal after Quaker Oats did some market research and found that kids preferred crunchy cereal.
4: It's my understanding that originally it was going to be Captain Crunch, but during one of the early recording sessions, one of the actors mispronounced it as Captain instead of Captain. They decided, well, that was catchier anyway, so they turned it into Captain Crunch. All of the Quaker animated commercials were done by Jay Ward, the genius behind Rocky and Bullwinkle. The commercials followed that same pattern with that wonderful, dry humor and the great voices. Captain Crunch himself was Dawes Butler, the actor who was known for being Yogi Bear and Huckleberry Hound and Snagglepuss and all of those characters.
0: Do you know what Captain Crunch's full name is? Captain Horatio P. Crunch. Captain Horatio P. Crunch. He was born on Crunch Island in the Sea of Milk, and there was a mountain on this island called Mount Crunchmore that was made completely out of Cap'n Crunch cereal. Who is your favorite mascot?
4: Uh, I guess I was always partial to Toucan Sound. Uh, I loved his early design with the really, really long beak, and he had that kind of, I guess you might say, a Carmen Miranda-type hat with all the different fruit in it. Follow your nose. It always knows. That's right. I might mention Lucky the Leprechaun from the Lucky Charms. The earliest commercials they did with him, he wasn't nearly as friendly as the character that we all know and love from later on. In those early commercials, they always had him being chased by children, of course. Always after me, Lucky Charms. But in the earliest commercials, instead of it being more or less a game between them, I mean, he would use his magic to zap the kids onto the edge of a cliff, or he would cause rocks to fall down on them or things like that. He really, he acted like he really wanted to kill those kids. It's easy to see why they would have softened that a little later. (laughs) But if you find any of the early Lucky commercials, you'll find that he wasn't exactly a likable character.
0: We have to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a snap, crackle, and pop. And Tucker Shaw will reveal his last meal. Just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at CascadePBS.org or find a link in the show notes. Well, let's get to the big question of the show. Uh, What would your last meal be?
1: Well, it's such a good question. Not to be too macabre about it, but if I am having my honest to goodness last meal, I would like the reaper to find me in a state of slumber, I guess, <laughs> in a peaceful sleep, and the best the best thing to eat before going to sleep for me is a really really savory pantry pasta kind of um i guess you would say puttanesca ish so spaghetti with tons of anchovies and garlic and capers and tons of parmesan cheese and all those kind of really deep savory briny salty Flavors.
0: Mm, is this something? Is this your new cereal? Is this something you make before bed now?
1: Occasionally, yeah. Again, you know, pasta in the middle of the night is probably not great for my old body. <laughs> um, but boy, do I love those flavors, and boy, do they put me in a in a state of relaxation for sure. I also feel like there's it's really good way to cook without really having to think too much about it you don't really have to follow a recipe to do that sort of thing if you can boil pasta and then then throw a bunch of stuff into a skillet you can have this and it doesn't matter if you have every ingredient in a recipe for this as long as you have anchovies are a must for sure and capers and garlic and olive oil and hopefully some parmesan cheese maybe a little bit of lemon um it's just sort of so easy and you can screw it up and not really do it perfectly and it's still going to be really good
0: Yeah, so do you keep those ingredients around all the time, just in case? If
1: I notice in my cupboard that there is not a little tin of anchovies, I freak out. <laughs> I just get, I get like, I, I almost break into hives. It's like if I notice in my kitchen that there's no lemons. So these are things yeah, that same. I always pick up at the grocery store no matter what.
0: Yeah. I have no, I feel like finally tinned fish is having a moment. And when I say having a moment, mm. I feel like people aren't going, Oh, gross. Like growing up. I mean, I still think of it as a stinky dad food. Cause it's my dad always <laughs> ate smoked fish off in the morning on top. Tub- my dad's israeli and i always liked it as a kid but it was something for most of my life that i kept as a secret food because i thought and i was often right that people would think it was disgusting
1: (laughs) totally true but also like an unapologetic tin of sardines on toast yeah so good so good
0: i love the smoked oysters that's my favorite oh yum yeah hard to beat Uh, Do you have other variations on pantry pasta that you do? Because I feel like that's kind of my ultimate comfort food too. Like that's just, I could eat it every day. Some variation on things in the cupboard, even just lemon, Parmesan and butter.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So good. I love, and I know this is much maligned, but I love sun-dried tomatoes. I think they're so good and I've never lost my love for them. And a little bit of pasta tossed with chopped up sun-dried tomatoes and a little bit of the oil that they, you know, have been sort of preserved in. Um, maybe a little bit of like salami, if you dice that up and, and render it a little bit beforehand. So good. I don't know why sun-dried tomatoes fell out of fashion. I guess they just became too ubiquitous or something but they really are good
0: yeah that's something i think about a lot is is why food is fashionable and not because yeah you say Mm -hmm. sun-dried tomatoes and everyone's like that is so 90s but it tastes the Mm -hmm. same as it does in the 90s and it still tastes good so why are we not eating it any we're still eating bread since the dawn of time
1: hello exactly
0: yeah for his last meal, Tucker Shaw wants a savory pantry pasta, spaghetti with lots of anchovies, capers, garlic, Parmesan cheese, and hopefully a little lemon. Now, I have focused a lot on a book that Tucker wrote in 2005. I hope this isn't bugging him too much. But his new YA novel, When You Call My Name, is fantastic and important reading.
1: The YA novel set in 1990 in New York City um, and it uh, follows a couple of teenage kids coming up and coming out as young gay people during the height of the AIDS crisis in New York City. Um, I moved to New York City in 1991, and this was a time and a place I, I know very well and have sort of carried with me for a long time a lot of these memories and I wanted to try to, you know, 30 years on kind of render a story about what it felt like in those days, because I think it's important for us to remember uh, not just sort of what was lost at that time, but also how the world kind of reacted to it and, and how the gay community kind of came together imperfectly, of course, but in a way that helped to move our story forward. And I worry that the more that we forget about these kinds of stories and history, the more danger we are in of uh, kind of repeating it or moving backwards. And so I wanted to render a, a picture of that time with uh, with the music and the fashion. And there was a lot of joy happening in those days, too, along with a lot of pain. So it felt like a story that maybe it took me 30 years to kind of have the courage, I suppose, to write about.
0: And that was Tucker Shaw's Last Meal. Pick up his new book, When You Call My Name, at your favorite bookstore. The story he tells has really stuck with me. Thanks to Dr. Jaren Kabuchu and Dr. Sarah R. Graff. And Tim Hollis. He's written 38 books on pop culture history, including part of A Complete Breakfast. What is your favorite cereal of all time?
4: Oh, I don't know that I have a particular favorite. I'll... I'll just switch them up. I love Lucky Charms. I love Cocoa Puffs. I love any of the unhealthy ones. (laughs) I never cared much for the healthy ones like Cheerios and Wheaties. They just didn't appeal to me.
0: You're naming all my favorites. Your Last Meal is a Slide Down the Dinosaur Media production, created and produced by me. This episode was masterfully mixed by my favorite sound designer, Randy Torres. Thanks, Randy. And theme music by Prom Queen. Make sure you're following along on Instagram. I'm Hello Rachel Bell B E L L E. I also have a free newsletter. But there is an option to donate to the show there which is much appreciated you can find the link to the newsletter in the show notes thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to review the show or give it five stars on apple Podcasts. this helps so much the more reviews the show gets the more the algorithm pushes it out to more people which makes advertisers happy which means i can get paid and continue to make the show so if you haven't left a review it takes Two seconds. Just go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review as soon as the episode is over. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is your last meal. Hello. Hi. Hi there. How are you? I'm good. I you're not
1: feeling well. I'm so sorry.
0: Thanks. I'm okay. I just had a little sore throat, and so I didn't go in. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. Okay. And I was like, I'm not taking a shower, and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not turning my camera on. And this Tucker Shaw can't make me do it. You just can't. <clears throat> nope. Nope. Don't
1: you're not you going to do, do it.
0: it.